Hey, all good morning. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, uh, 27th of September today. And I'm going to take you in a little time machine back to a day in July. Not to the uh, basement studios of the Vogue Common Good, Common Good Podcast here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the weather, by the way, is classic fall day. I'll take you back to a hot, sweaty day in July of 2023 in North Carolina, where I talk with David Gushy. David Gushy is a, a professor, he's a, a thinker, he's an, uh, a pastor, he's an author of a number of really great books, he's a friend of mine, and he's written a, a tremendous book that I have in my hand right now. Now, the reason that we are going to show you a conversation from July is because I was with David at a thing called the Wild Goose Festival. If you're interested in any of this, you can go to wildgoosefestival.org and see it's a spirituality, music, and arts festival in uh, held in North Carolina. And it's one of those classic festivals where you're outside, you know, in the tents in July in North Carolina. So we both look a little sweaty. Uh, this is, I don't know, second or third day. Crowd's already a little tired, but really rowdy for a morning get-together, I will tell you. So we're going to show you this, um, this conversation that David and I had in front of a, front of a whole group. Just want to uh, let you know right now that because we recorded this outside, the sound has a lot of other ambient uh, features to it than what you typically get here from the studio. So your mind will just have to shift a little bit and pretty soon that noise will go away and it'll all sound good. But we talked about this book that David has written called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Now, look, David is a Christian. He's a Christian ethicist. He's a Christian pastor. He's a Christian leader. But he also recognizes that not only in the United States are there movements afoot that are seeking to replace democracy with authoritarianism, but around the world. So one of the great things about David's contribution to this Christian nationalism authoritarian movements that are, uh, that are happening, of all the work that's being done in this, is he really connects people with what's happening in other places so that we recognize the larger patterns that are going on in Russia, in Hungary, in the United States, and, and the like. So we talk a bit about that. Conversations uh, a half an hour long, and uh, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna really enjoy it. Um, there's a third person sitting on the stage with us. His name is Ken Miedema. Ken Miedema is a musician and um, listens to presentations. So he's sitting there listening to our presentation, and then at the end he crafts a song specifically for that in response to that presentation. We're not going to show you the song, though. It didn't record very well. It didn't come out. So sorry to lead you on. But just so you know why there's a man sitting there. Uh, Ken is an, an extraordinary talent. I've had the privilege of being around him for a long time, and he just has uh, really great abilities. In addition to his ability to listen so keenly and craft music at time, Ken Miedema is blind. So you're going to maybe notice that as he's sitting there as well, the way that his head moves and the way that he listens because he's attentive with his ears and his body in a way that's uh, different than attentive with his eyes. So anyway, that's why Ken's there. I do put a little label on uh, under his name so you can see that it's Ken Meadema. You'll see me and then David and a cover of this book. Now, uh, I waited all the way from July until now to show this video to you. You know, from July, early July to the end of September, you know, in video interview time, that's, that's an eternity. Uh, the reason I waited so long was the book comes out next Tuesday. And the reason I'm sharing it today instead of next Wednesday is I know these are already being delivered to people ahead of time. I received mine. So I had a chance to read this book before it was published. 
and, uh, and then received my copy. So if you're interested in this book and you place an order, oftentimes the books are, are then delivered right on uh, release day, which would be Tuesday. Books are always released on Tuesdays. It's just one of the things in the industry. Movies come out on Fridays. Books come out on Tuesdays. That's how they keep track of the number of weeks. So every book has the same number of weeks because that's a big thing in book sales numbers. Anyway, so it comes out on Tuesday and of next week. And you can get yours now if you were to order it on Amazon. Or I think if you do it on Kindle, you probably have to wait until uh, release day. But sometimes the hard copies show up at your house ahead of time. All right. So here it is, conversation with David Gushy about uh, not only Christian nationalism, but the uh, impacts of this around the world. I'm going to be here uh, in the studio monitoring the chat. I already see that uh, that, that Barbara uh, Horton Nadrash Blair has said hello from uh, uh, Cape May, New Jersey. Well, hello from New Jersey, uh, Barbara. Thanks for saying hello. Anybody else, uh, you know, throw in your hellos and uh, let us know how the weather is where you are. Uh, and, and then any thoughts that you have about the presentation and the conversation that David Gushy and I are having here. So here we go. Um, Recorded live on a hot, sweaty morning in uh, in uh, North Carolina, uh, underneath the tent from the Wild Goose Festival. I hope you enjoy every moment of this. Thanks for being here this morning. We know it's early. I saw some of you at the late night honky tonk last night, so I know the level to which uh, commitment that this is. So nice to see you here today. Um, David Gushy has written a really great book. It has a provocative title, and even more so, the content of it. He's incredible. I feel very privileged, David, to be able to talk with you about this and to have uh, read the book before it, come out, it came out. The book is not available until October, so you're going to take this and hold on until you can get to October. And there it is right there. Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies is the title of the book. Now, it's a book that deals with Christian nationalism. People are clapping already. Already, just the title. Yeah, that's fine. That's it. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, don't bore us, just get to the chorus, right? Just hit the, uh, hit the title. I run an organization where we traveled this last fall in a big bus that said faith, hope, and love, not insurrections and Christian nationalism. And we did trainings all over the country, and we asked people if they thought Christian nationalism was a problem. And people would show up in rooms, and we would do hour-and-a-half-long trainings, and we developed curriculum and all this kind of stuff for it. And we would often ask people, do you think Christian nationalism is a problem? I'll ask you, you think it's a problem? And then we would say, what is Christian nationalism? And then the hands would go down like, well, I'm not totally sure, but I know it's a problem. <laughs> now, that's, not a, that, that's okay, right? We don't have to know everything about every problem. I have a little shtick that I do. I did yesterday, so I'll just do it briefly now. I don't think we have a problem. I think we have a predicament. Because problems have solutions. Predicaments require multiple responses. So we're in a much different situation with Christian nationalism. It's just a problem to be solved. So all of us are going to respond in different ways. David's a professor. David's a writer. He's written this great book that takes us out of just the U.S. context and into a global context, which is really the heartbeat of what I hope you get out of today. We have a thing that we do in the life of the organization I work for, and you all have something to do. So our hope today is that you feel yourself to be participants in your response to the threat of Christian nationalism in the United States and around the world, not just observers to someone's articulation of their response to this. So, yeah, in other words, as Harvey, in a Harvey Milk-like moment, we're here to recruit you. Uh, we're here to recruit you not just to buy a book, but into uh, action to be the people who start carrying on a message that gives us some alternatives to Christian nationalism. So, Dave, 
Let me start with you on this one. When you think Christian nationalism, what are you thinking? Well, one thing I'm thinking is that I don't think that that concept is totally adequate to the problems that we're dealing with. Um, can you all hear me okay? Okay, in the back, good. Um, essentially, the way the term is being used is a kind of white, mainly white, ethno-Christian tribalism in the U.S. that seeks to roll back many advances uh, or changes in society that a lot of us here would consider are good changes, like women's equality and a multicultural society and racial justice progress to the extent that there's been some. Um, and to essentially claw back power for conservative, white, straight, Christian men in society by democratic means if possible, by non-democratic means if necessary. Um, and I show in the book that this is, while it looks different in some different countries, it's not just a U.S. problem. Um, so that's essentially a thumbnail of what Christian nationalism is. I think there's a better label. Would you like to hear about what that label is? Very much would love to know uh, the label that you think, the category in which you think Christian nationalism um, I think that the broader uh, category is, I'm calling it authoritarian, reactionary, Christian politics. I think that's more descriptive, and it also covers more countries. Would, would you be willing to say it again? I saw people wanting to write it down, and they're going to try to catch up. And yeah. I think it's such a mm -hmm. powerful And I'd like to unpack it, too. Please. All right. Please. Um, so, authoritarian, reactionary... Christian politics. Let's start with the reactionary part. There's a significant chunk, we'll stay in the U.S. for now, uh, a significant chunk of people in the U.S. who are in sharply negative reaction to pretty much every social change that has happened here since about 1962. And, um, and so that would include things like uh, more religious pluralism and Supreme Court decisions taking organized prayer out of public schools uh, or state-sponsored prayer, and uh, immigration, especially non-European immigration, and uh, the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the sexual revolution and the gay rights movement and so on. And for, for this chunk of the population, which I might estimate to be about a quarter of the population. Um, most or all of these developments are creating a, a society that they don't like, that they consider to be uh, um, decadent and even ungodly. Um, and they want to organize and are organizing to, to take their country back. So it's reactionary. Reactionary politics is a long-standing pattern in human life, right? It's not just in the U.S. and it's not just now. They're authoritarian in the sense that, in general, their religious and moral vision tends to be more top-down um, with uh, direction for living authoritatively decreed by uh, pastors or, or bishops or popes or um, leaders who have authority. And um, 
And also, it tends to be less uh, patient with dialogue and debate about moral questions that this side believes have been settled centuries ago by revelation or tradition. Um, I would also say that I think this is the latest stage of a movement that began attempting to mobilize through democratic politics and still does mobilize through democratic politics. In other words, getting people elected at every level and uh, pushing policy proposals. But that what we saw with Trump after, well, he was lawless throughout his presidency, but what, it, what we saw after he lost the election was a new frontier, a, a movement towards well, if we can't win elections, we'll have to retain power anyway. And so a movement towards insurrectionism. Um, it helps to understand that on the, the most radical fringe of the reactionary right, these, these cultural and social changes that I'm describing are understood to be not just unfortunate, but disastrous. Not just disastrous, but in some cases demonic. And so people like us, maybe, who are here, who are happy with a multicultural society or a LGBTQ inclusive society or a society where other than white people sometimes get to be in charge of things, um, we are, are viewed by some as demonic. Um, and when you're fighting against demons, the normal rules don't apply. Um, and so conspiracy thinking, apocalyptic thinking, end times thinking, as well as that can take a kind of a violent turn at some times. If we can't, if we can't get things to happen the way they should happen, we may have to take matters into our own hands. This concept of introducing authoritarianism as an alternative to the democratic process. Brian McLaren does some training for organization with uh, people running for office and others. And he has this beautiful uh, spectrum line where it has conservative ideas on one end and more liberal ideas on the other. And our normal political battles range in here. And then he suggests, but there's an, no, another option, which is authoritarianism, which is not just simply along a conservative or progressive spectrum. It's a different way of organizing for political power, setting boundaries, and establishing and maintaining order, right? Power, boundaries, and order. That's what authoritarianism is up to. There was a poll a while back that stirred up a lot of conservatives that I know, where they asked young people, this is really in like uh, uh, 2008, 2010, how do you feel about socialism? Would you be up for the country being a socialist country? Maybe you remember those polls going around. And a whole bunch of them said, we'd be willing to give that a try. You remember all this? Well, that freaked out a lot of people, right? On the right. There was a not formal but illustrative question asked to people on the right. How would you feel about some authoritarianism? Would you be up for that? And people have organized and said yes. The insurrection on January 6, 2021 is one of those. But it's also happening across school boards and mayor's races and city council takeovers. So there is another option than just the political spectrum, and it's authoritarianism. I think it's helpful in your book that you help us to see how that's played out, how authoritarianism has played out as an alternative in other democratic contexts around the world, because it gives us the chance to look at it 
Uh, it's like looking at a group picture that you're not in, because if you're in the group picture, all you look at first is you, and if your eyes were open, if your hair looked okay. But when you're looking at a picture of a group of people that you're not in, you look at it differently, and sometimes it can be quite helpful to take a look at how it's happening around the world. I know that's the second half of the book where you talk about this, but would you be willing to go down that road for a bit? Sure. I argue in the book that a long-term historical perspective helps, that a certain kind of conservative or traditionalist Christianity has been uneasy with developments in the Western world, especially since the Enlightenment, since the democratic revolutions of the 17th and 18th century, um, since the dethroning of God and certain Christian versions of God as the sacred canopy under which the whole society understands itself to be organized. So reactionary politics from the conservative Christian community, a good place to see it is in France after the French Revolution in uh, the late 18th century. Um, the French Catholic Church didn't come to terms with, with the French Revolution until probably about 1960, you know, um, and you can see it in Germany as well. So I have a chapter on post-revolutionary France. I have a chapter on Germany in the 19th and early 20th centuries where uh, despair over modern developments led to right-wing politics that ultimately led to Nazism. And then I have chapters on, um, you don't really want to be on this list, but here we are, um, chapters on Russia under Putin, Hungary under Viktor Orban, uh, Poland under the Law and Justice Party, uh, Brazil under Bolsonaro, and the U.S. under Trump. Root picture. Um, and, and while there are differences in each of these countries, for sure, what they all have in common, or have had in common, Bolsonaro is out of power, but his, his movement doesn't disappear. Trump's out of power, his movement hasn't disappeared, is authoritarian reactionary Christian politics. We need a Christian strongman to fight back the powers of evil, like the gay rights movement, and gender ideology, and socialism, and reclaim the country for the people who are really supposed to be in charge of it, who really constitute the people. This is nationalism within a country happens when a certain group of people within the country are considered to be the true nation. Other people are really outsiders. By the way, this is not only a modern development. In fact, I always like to quote this line from Franklin Roosevelt. He had a Jewish person and a Catholic person in his cabinet, and at one point I think he felt that they were pushing too hard for something, and Franklin Roosevelt said to them, this is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, everyone else is here by sufferance. Franklin Roosevelt said that in like 1943. So, so you might say that the development of a pluralistic, multi-faith, multi-moral belief system, multi-whatever, um, is actually a relatively recent development in American history that is leading to ferocious backlash. And you can isolate specific movements like African-American civil rights, every movement for progress 
two steps forward, three steps back because the backlash is so strong. But it's true in multiple other dimensions as well. So part of what is needed is to articulate very clearly why Christianity does not have to produce authoritarianism or reactionary visions of the world. And in, in some ways, you might say that's what Wild Goose Community is about. An entire community of people, lay people, theologians, ministers, everybody saying, you know, our version of Christianity is not authoritarian. It's not reactionary. It's justice-oriented and inclusive and democratic and egalitarian. We have to strengthen those voices in every country where we can identify them and lift them up. For many of us, when we find ourselves talking about democracy in America, we're reminded by many people the truth that that democracy you're imagining might not have ever existed, or if it did, it didn't exist for everyone in the same way. So those of you democracy pushers out there that are saying that's the thing that's going to save us, that's your fiction, because we have used power over many peoples, some would even say all the peoples, some point, because that's what the structure is. So for a lot of people, the move between democracy and authoritarianism has this big ocean gap between them. They can't quite figure it out. And for others, they're like, no, I think the difference is like a little stream that you can easily hop over. And we spend a whole lot of time in this country having to retell our story so we don't sound and feel like the authoritarian thing that we're now afraid of. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you yeah. Um, it is especially a, uh, a, a liberal and, and liberationist critique that says, hold on, America never really was a democracy. Or it was a white, a white kind of ethno-democracy, and that's what we have from 1776 forward. Um, ideals were articulated that had broader implication, but in practice they were subverted. Um, I have a chapter in the book in what I call the, the Black Democratic Resistance Tradition. And when you read deeply in the history of African American political thought, this has been a theme since before the founding of our nation. That, that slavery and then Jim Crow and segregation, racism has always subverted American democracy. Um, but so if we want to protect American democracy from its current threats from people like Trump, the people around that orbit, we actually have to do our work on our side to, to correct the problems of democracy that have been there from the beginning. Um, in other words, anti-authoritarianism and pro-democracy right now involves, for example, fighting gerrymandering and the taking away of African-American access to voting and uh, every other thing that, that uh, has been a flaw in our democracy from the beginning. Um, so the, the danger is is to fall into cynicism that would go something like this, this country's never been a democracy, why should we bother with it now? Um, and I would just say, while it has never actualized the promise of democracy, I would prefer 
even what we had as of 1992 to Myanmar or Russia or Hungary or China, we can value the good things we have while being patriotic enough, Christian enough to want to love our neighbors better in the political process. One of the things that I've learned is that for a lot of Christians in Christian churches and in Christian online faith communities, organize around is not a narrative of democracy and authoritarianism. These would be foreign sort of notions. They organize around a version of Christian spirituality that's often called dominionism, meaning there's certain dominions and places, and the brand name for that is something called the Seven Mountains of Influence. If you're unfamiliar with Seven Mountains of Influence, give it a look and you'll start to understand why religious people support Donald Trump. The basic idea is that there's seven areas of cultural impact, education, uh, media, governments, uh, uh, a bunch of three or four others, um, media, business. The idea is that the way that Jesus's prayer of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is through the establishment of key leaders. Seven mountains comes from a, the imagery of Moses going up on the mountaintop to receive the commands of God. So the idea is that there's seven mountains of influence, seven Sinai's, and different people are going to be key leaders in those places. These countries that uh, David mentioned are places where this movement has facilitated those leaders. The National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. has this as a core narrative, what they're doing, bringing people from around the world to find key leaders. So the vision for how the agenda of God is going to play out in the world is that certain people are going to rise up and they're going to be the person that represents God's agenda to the world. Donald Trump was uniquely that way for these people because in media, business, and now politics, he was a key leader and therefore a selected person by God to perform these actions. And therefore, no way could he have lost an election because he's the chosen one of God. So we now need to correct the wrong that we know had to be done because it can't work that way. Okay, so this is the narrative they tell. And the reason I bring this up is that the people I know who are into authoritarianism and Christian nationalism, for them, it's the current best option, not the most tormenting worst option. So they feel like this is what gets us ahead, and they want to be bigger than the United States. The agenda of God involves all the world, so this is going on all the world. And if a democracy in America has to suffer some to get the agenda of God uh, uh, to allow the, uh, the agenda of God to be fulfilled? Well, of course you would do that, right? Th this is the narrative that they're telling. Do you have thoughts about that? Do you see it that way? Or? So, last night, while some of you were drinking beer, I was reading Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> nerd alert, nerd alert. <laughs> Could have gone down easier both ways. Tonight, Thomas Aquinas having been completed, I shall drink beer. <laughs> anyway, so I was reading Aquinas, uh, the leading medieval theologian. I was reading his political thought just because that's what nerd scholars do when they're ready, readying for something like this. And he basically says, it's God's world. There's one God. 
God rules over all the world. It, to any extent that God's rule is not recognized, that's not good. Uh, kings, there should be, preferably the political system should be a king, because it's better to have centralized power than diffused power. And best if that king is Christian, and if that king understands the advance of virtue and true religion as part of his agenda. Um, and so, writing in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, taking a vision that had already been there, the Christendom vision. This is God's world. The God, the only God is the God we know in Jesus, right? So that's God's world, top-down authority, centralized power. Um, he wrestles with questions like, if you happen to find yourself under the authority of somebody who's not Christian, do you have to obey them? Things like that. So it's the habit of Christian power. I think it's the habit of Christian power that is a deep cultural legacy. That, by the way, if, you, if you're in a small town, Southern America, you, you know about the habit of Christian power. Just go to the go to the prayer breakfast, the mayor's prayer breakfast, or the chamber of commerce meeting, or the Rotary Club, when the Baptist pastor and the mayor and they're, they're all in there together. It's just it's Christian America, right? In essence, the vision is the whole country should be like that. The whole world should be like that. Every business, media, politics, and anything that is not that, you come up with a label like globalist or socialist or demonic or whatever. Um, so you need a theological response to that. And the theological question is, how can we love God and want to see God's will done on earth without having a politics that looks like that. And in some of my work, in other words, the concept of the reign of God, the kingdom of God, has been retooled. A reign of justice and mercy and inclusive community. God reigns through service. God reigns through inclusion. God reigns through welcoming and serving as opposed to dominating and excluding. So I think we have to have a theological response as Christians, if we're Christians. Otherwise, the Christian dominionists, you might say, have to feel to themselves. David, yeah, I'm going to keep asking questions until I give applause to the question. So we're just going to be here all day. Because we're, if you just mention just beer, just you mentioned beer, it might help. Okay, that seemed to work. Okay, that's quite, quite a cocktail. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, let's talk a bit about you for a second. Uh, this view that you now have and have articulated because of writing and study has been coming along. It's very fresh, powerful, it's useful. Have you always held it, or do you have a story yourself by which some of these other notions and ideas seemed attractive, and you've let them go? Thank you, thank you. That's great. Please, please. We don't have time for the applause. Please, we don't have any time. We don't have any time. There's no time. Uh, I've hardly ever, ever heard a question more majestic than that question. <laughs> Your humble servant. Um, no, I was never attracted to right-wing politics. Um, uh, I discovered when I was going through boxes when we moved one time, I had a 1976 yearbook, um, middle school. That, it, that dates me, so hopefully it's okay. We're still friends, so it's good. Um, and somebody wrote in there, you're a good guy, even though you supported that peanut farmer for president, you know. Uh, 
So that was 1976. Um, so my, my political inclinations have always leaned center left. Um, but here's what, here's what I think is fresh. I was trained in a Christian ethical tradition in which the superiority of democracy over totalitarianism, both of the left or of the right, communism and Nazism, was mother's milk. That's what we talked about in school. Um, that we saw in the mid-20th century what happens when right-wing regimes do their work. And then after that came communism, and we saw under communism all that massacre and, and evil. That liberal democracy, for all of its flaws, is the best available political system. And so, and the idea that we would be able to run an election without having people do insurrections, that, we, that, we would, that there'd be peaceful transfers of power, that people would acknowledge the humanity of the other side, that was taken for granted because that was the politics in which we came along, right? Um, think about how much Kennedy and Nixon hated each other. Think about how close that election was in 1960, but Nixon conceded. Think about Bush versus Gore in 2000. Remember how close that election was? 537 votes in Florida, but Gore conceded. And then Trump comes along, and we have a completely new era. So what ethicists used to do is say, okay, White House and Congress, we think climate policy should look like this, so we're going to present to you proposals, and we're going to ask you to pass laws using the democratic process, a quaint old thing called democracy and policymaking and stuff. Now, I, we're seeing that our 250-year-old political system is itself up for grabs, and democratic backsliding may mean, what you might say, like, if the house is burning, you have to put out the fire before you can talk about what you, how you're going to rearrange the furniture, right? We have to put out the fire of authoritarianism. But also, think about the fire of the heat around here. Think of the heat all around the world. To the extent that we can't even manage to run elections and have uncontested uh, democratic traditions, we get all paralyzed in our internal conflicts. We can't resolve any policy questions. And... And so it's tragic, too, because we can't address real human problems because we can't even agree on how to do governance anymore. It's going to do that. So we only have a, a, a moment or two yeah. left because of this response. But you're around to talk about this with, with others. I have a book signing happening uh, in the next hour, and I'll sit there until they kick me out of the room or nobody else wants to talk to me. And those are other books you've written. This particular book, again, a reminder, yeah. doesn't come out until October. Yeah, you can order it online in advance, but I have several other books in there, and I'd be happy to meet you and talk with you. Talk to you about so, and, I, and are you doing other sessions? Uh, this is the last one. The last yeah. One. I did talk to Jeff Clark, and we're talking about coming back next year to talk about where we are one year from now on this democracy thing. So I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. Here's my final question for you on this. A lot of people's response to Christian nationalism as the brand name expression of authoritarianism inside the United States is, we should have less public Christianity. We don't know how to do it right. We don't know how to do it in a way that it doesn't you know, drive off the road. So the thing we need to do is tap down the amount of Christian expression in our country. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, even though uh, religious affiliation in America is declining, um, 
there's still an awful lot of religiosity in America. And any political movement that banishes religious vocabulary and religious sensibility is going to lose. Um, so we don't need to banish religious talk, though certain kinds of religious talk is not helpful. But we need to offer a robust alternative. The best place to find the robust alternative is in uh, African-American and other churches that have a tradition of religious resistance to injustice. Um, and the abolitionist, the black abolitionist tradition, the social justice tradition is, is a place to start. I have a chapter on that in the book. I talk about also the covenantal tradition of Christianity and the uh, the democratic egalitarian tradition of a lot of Christianity as resources. We need to draw on the resources of our own faith to present a better vision and reclaim the Christians to get our own way uh, back on track. Um, I, I hear a lot in the work that, that we do from other people in the political system who are uh, wanting to resist Christian nationalism, that they want Christians to start dealing with Christian nationalism and not push it on others. I hear from a lot of black leaders, look, you've got a Christian national problem inside the racial segregated churches that you're all a part of. Don't push this on us. Fix it. I hear young people saying, I don't want to hear people go to a bunch of meetings and say, how can we get young people to be engaged? We didn't start the fire. Do your job and fix it, and we'll do our job in our time class. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Like yeah. white Christian churches and people from those traditions need to really step it up as their responsibility and not sort of, see what I mean. This is not the Democratic Party's problem. This is white Christian people's problem. Um, and I, I drove by a church on the way in here that had a sign that said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And it's a great old Bible quote and there's a good background to it and I wondered if I were to go there with Sunday school class, what would be being said, right? It's happening church by church. Pastors have lost their jobs because they resisted Christian nationalism. And Trump won't even be on the ballot because he's going to um, We need brave pastors. We need lay people to stand up. Um, it's, it's essentially the identification of Jesus Christ with right-wing reactionary politics is idolatry and heresy and must be named as such from within the church. That is David Duffy. This is Ken Riedema. You know who you are, and we're all in this space together. So thank you, Ken. Well, there it was. A great little conversation with David Gushy, and thanks to all of you for your um, contributions in the uh, in the chat. I want to just pop up uh, Yabit's uh, comment from, from YouTube, our preferred channel for all things on the Common Good podcast, by the way. Uh, Yabit says, I try to use the words democratic process instead of democracy. Democratic process is more specific and focused. Yep, I think that's a great comment. Um, I think that's a great way to talk about it. We should have a democratic process that people are committed to. And, and that's really, uh, you know, what this is about. You can see that there's all these interlacing ideas, right? The role of Christianity, the understanding of our theologies, the understanding of what we mean by civics. Um, it's, look, d democracy is our chosen form of governance. I think it serves best for people in the world. I think it's the best option in the United States, and it is ours. Having said that, it's not the only way that human beings can organize. 
I think we're remiss if we start to anthropomorphize uh, God's response to democracy. In other words, thinking God has a preference for democracy. There's a lot of ways that we have societies and have had a lot of means of societies over the time of humanity. Democracy is not the only one. There's nothing wed between Christianity and democracy. They can work well together. They should work well together. We need them to work well together, but it's not forced on us, right? It's not a thing you have to have in order to be truly Christian. So we should be careful about that, right? That's one of the things. That doesn't mean, though, that the, the insurrectionist supporting Christians who are like, look, if we have to give up democracy for a period of time in order for the will of God to be uh, achieved— we can't simply say, no, we have to have democracy. We have to have other arguments as to why giving up democracy would be a damaging thing. So we also have to talk about democracy. We really do have to talk about the democratic process, as Yabitz corrects us to say. So uh, just a lot of things that go into these conversations. Truthfully, most of us just assume a lot. We assume that Christianity is going to be uh, democratically leaning and so on and so forth. Fine and great. Uh, we should. But then we also should sharpen our focus a little bit when the conversations demand that we have these, these conversations with others. So invite people into conversations about faith, about civic life, about form of democracy, all of this. It seems like something we should do. Again, the book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, uh, for those of you who want to defend democracy. David Gushy is uh, the name of that person that was in the interview, and you might you can find him at davidgushy.com, a G U S. H-E-E. And uh, all right. Thanks for being a part of all of this. Uh, hello. Uh, so so thanks, Karen. Uh, thanks, Yabbits. <laughs> Thank you, Yabbits, for the applause. I should throw up the, he says, a uh, little applause here. I'll throw up uh, our own little applause lines uh, for people. Yeah, I'm going to get cheers. Um, all right. So thanks for being a part of all of this. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, astrophysicist Paul Wallace on Thursday. So our live streams, boy, they bring you all around the bend. We talk about politics, we talk about faith, we talk about civic life, we talk about the stars and the sky with astrophysicist Birder, pastor, author, Paul Wallace. Uh, that'll be tomorrow. All right, thanks for being a part of the podcast today and the live stream. You can find this, obviously, in an audio version and uh, go over to YouTube. Even if you're not a regular YouTuber, just go over there, search for Vote Common Good, subscribe to our channel. It helps the algorithm know that good people like you think this is something worth watching, and then that helps other good people find it as well. So build the common good with us over there on the channel. All right. Uh, hey, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye now.